Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. Jewish thinkers, activists, and politicians were early champions of international institutions and the notion of human rights. But in the decades after the Holocaust and the creation of the State of Israel, the relationship between the UN, human rights NGOs, the organized Jewish community, and the Israeli government has frequently been strained, to put it mildly. Our guest today is Nathan Kurtz, who has a new book out on this subject, released just a few weeks ago, Jewish Internationalism and Human Rights After the Holocaust. Nathan has taught at Yale University and Birkbeck College at the University of London, and has served as a visiting fellow at Oxford. He holds a PhD in history from Yale, and full disclosure, and a point of pride for us on the podcast, he's also a member of the steering committee for the San Francisco chapter of IPF Atid, which is Israel Policy Forum's Young Professionals Network. So, Nathan, thanks for joining us. Evan, thanks for for having me. I guess my uh, ideological bona fides have already been given away. But not the content of the book, which is is very far reaching. And, and, you know, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. But, you know, I should give full notice to our listeners that there's a lot in this conversation that I don't think we'll be able to cover. And I encourage everyone to read the book because uh, this really is a uh, comprehensive work. So let's get to the basis of it. Why did you write this book? And, and tell us a little more about what it's about. Yeah, you know, I thought a lot about this. And I think... Uh you can only really know sort of looking back subconscious, how the subconscious can kind of work. Um, you know, I think I was really influenced by Peter Beinart's um, essays on the failure of the American Jewish establishment and the American Jewish cocoon, perhaps more so than his um, book uh, in large part, because I think it's challenged the status quo I had seen in the American Jewish community on Israel um, whether or not he supports that kind of liberal Zionism anymore is is, a, is another question. Um, but but I think it sort of um, unlocked this kind of dissonance for me because I looked at the state of organized, particularly organized American Jewry and its hawkishness on Israel, and then noticed their sort of self-description uh, as being sort of in the vanguard of human rights. And I kind of wondered where this remnants of this thinking came from. And then I sort of paired that with, uh, you know, my, my, my knowledge of Jewish history and uh, the academic study of the history of human rights, which is something that's only sort of come into fashion in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and basically, the American Jewish Committee uh, helps get human rights inserted to the UN Charter uh, uh, at the San Francisco Conference in 1945. And that is in every single history that I've read of this on this topic. And that's pretty much all there is. And so I'm kind of wondering how we got from point A to point B. That's an interesting point that you raise, because I think anyone with passing familiarity with this topic and passing involvement even in the, the Jewish community has heard or felt these tensions surrounding Israel and human rights or Israel and the UN. Um, but your book goes much further back than just these current conflicts and controversies and starts off with the role that Jews played in developing and promoting key human rights concepts and international institutions before and up to the 1940s. So could you describe that role a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I think my point of departure in that respect for this book was 
essentially Jews for almost a century, um, uh, Jewish elites, Jewish lawyers, Jewish organizations, uh, particularly in Western Europe uh, and the United States, played a really important role in popularizing um, mechanisms in which minorities would be uh, protected internationally. Um, before international institutions, what you had is empire. Uh, and I'm drawing on the work of uh, someone I really respect, Abigail Green, and, and many others here, when I basically say that um, Jews helped make the treatment of minorities a barometer of the entrance of new states into the international system, particularly uh, in the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, possibly the world's, the Jewish world's first NGO, the, uh, the French Alliance Israelite Universelle, um, their first public action was on behalf of uh, Syrian Christians being massacred in the Ottoman Empire. So you, ha you, so you have the, the sort of imperial intervention, and of course it has its own downsides, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but then you have the sort of experiment with uh, minority protection through the League of Nations. Jews uh, play a big role at getting that system put into place at Versailles in 1919, uh, in part due to reactions to pogroms going on in Poland um, and certain Jewish lobbyists, uh, and particularly Zionists, I must say, uh, play in a very important role in trying to formalize and strengthen um, international minority production throughout Central Eastern Europe in the interwar period um, until uh, ironically enough, it is co-opted by Nazis. I think that's one part of the Holocaust that's sort of um, underappreciated is that this whole system of minority protection was essentially used by German irredentists to say that, hey, there are you know, German minorities in these border states. We got to go uh, protect our endangered kin and this whole system that was basically supposed to help Jews and other minorities in Central Eastern Europe, um, in some ways, gets at least its logic gets um, flipped on its head. And so what's rather astounding is that um, after this uh, horrible catastrophe in which the international community and the Western powers uh, really fail to protect Jews during the Holocaust, you have these people lining up uh, at the UN to say, hey, let's try it all over again. And that idealism is rather striking. Yeah, it really is striking what you're you're bringing up because you have, on the one hand, exactly what you said, that idealism, and then the complete failure of the international system in the interwar period to confront the rise of the Nazis and to protect Jews in Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. And of course, that all culminates with the Holocaust and World War II. Um, and another point of friction that, that comes up in your, your book um, is also how you have the one stream that you discussed, which is all about protecting minority rights, protecting groups within states. Um, and then you have the, the transition of the big Jewish project being the creation of a nation state, the, the creation of the state of Israel in 1948, which of course, is understandably and, and I think rightfully a point of celebration for, for Jews in that period, but also raises a lot of complicated questions um, about Jewish human rights advocacy. I feel like when a lot of people talk about the 
friction and conflict that begins to develop between Jewish organizations and diaspora Jewry and the state of Israel, we think about the post-1967 occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. Um, but you trace that point to Israel's formative years before the Six-Day War. So could you discuss a little about how the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 and the years immediately following complicated traditional Jewish human rights advocacy? Sure. Um, you know, I think the, the sort of quandary can be summed up, uh, uh, you know, pretty easily. It's, it's very easy to uh, advocate and lobby for norms that apply to any and all states when you don't actually have your own state. Um, so, but what happens when Jews have their own state and they want to advocate and push norms, ideas, and institutions that will apply to that state as well? Um, and, and so I, I thought that there would be something there if I started looking. Um, and, you know, what I found, and these are for many people, these, these Jewish sort of lawyers and, and, and functionaries, um, I think initially believed that there would be no contradiction between uh, promoting uh, a, a, the consolidation of a Jewish state and defending it uh, and promoting human rights. Um, you know, you have someone like Jacob Blaustein, who um, was uh, actually at that San Francisco conference um, and, and he sort of becomes known as a a, a go-to person in the, the NGO community, but he's also, you know, one of the world's richest men and uh, a very well connected to the State Department and is also at the same time as he's doing that, he starts to begin lobbying for, you know, essentially military aid to Israel. And there, for him, there was no initial contradiction in, in doing that. Um, but of course, what, what happens um, with the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem with a lingering Arab minority after 1948, who goes um, under military rule, um, various issues that Israel has around its borders. Um, I spent some time um, on the, the, the Kibia uh, incident. Um, these present really vexing issues um, for Jewish human rights activists who did not expect that the Jewish state would have to take action that would fly in the face of things that they promoted for every state to uphold. They thought Israel would not be a human rights violator. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because I was sort of struck by this belief. Um, and and I, I don't really mean this as a value judgment of the people that we're talking about or even of the Israeli government, uh, but just this really aspirational belief in the 1940s and, and early 1950s that the state of Israel wouldn't behave the way that a state does, you know, imperfect, occasionally um, not treating minority populations in the way that they deserve or the way that, that they should be treated. And, and again, Israel is hardly unique in this respect, uh, but I, I, I would kind of strain to think of any country in the world, um, even even countries that that generally perform pretty well in, in, in these metrics that haven't uh, suffered these kinds of issues. But exactly what you're saying, the way it's recounted in the book, there's like a real shock that like, oh, Israel 
uh, has a minority population, Arab citizens of Israel, and they're having their, their rights infringed upon. And of course, there's the system of military rule that you mentioned in a couple of major incidents in the 1950s and the, the Kafir Qasim massacre in yep. um, 1956. So, so yeah, it, it's, like, it's like a weird dissonance. Um, and it's just a strange expectation. Yeah, I mean, also part of it, of course, is um, the sort of regional and global context in which Israel finds itself. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think the characters of my book really struggled to figure out is what is Arab propaganda? When are Israel's misdeeds being completely uh, overblown, uh, uh, exaggerated? in order to make Israel look bad, and it doesn't bear any semblance to reality. And when is, a, when is there a credible allegation that Israel is committing some kind of human rights abuse? Um, this is something they really, really struggled with. Um, and I think for the most part, um, and, and I'm not going to make a value judgment on this, they really deferred to the Israeli government for the most part, um, and, and, and mostly accepted Israel's version of events. Yeah, and, and of course, this was a very different international context, too. I mean, um, I think, certainly, I think this dynamic still plays out. I think that there are people who are torn between wanting uh, to believe the Israeli government or feeling an affinity for Israel um, and not wanting to believe often credible allegations of abuses or, or uh, misdeeds and, uh, you know, the existence of, of some things that are exaggerations, but in the context that you're writing, especially in, in the, uh, chapters of the book dealing with like 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, this is right in the, the heart of the cold war. And, um, a lot of this does circle back to, um, Soviet bloc and Arab state, uh, policy and declarations at the United Nations. So while I don't think, you know, you spare criticism for Israel's own conduct um, in the book towards its own Arab citizens and later toward Palestinians in the occupied territories, you also highlight the role that the Arab states and the Soviet Union and the communist bloc played at the UN um, in creating a sort of uh, uh, corrosive effect on the human rights discourse around Israel. So can you explain that phenomenon, the role that those Arab states and, and the USSR were playing? And in, in what ways, if any, is that still relevant? Sure. Um, let me take a couple of examples. One, uh, you know, the, um, the issue that was really uh, at the heart of the concern for the people that are the subject of my book was enshrining the right to petition. They wanted... Uh, you know, if someone in, if a Jew in Bolivia is being mistreated by their government, they wanted that person to be able to appeal to the UN. Uh, and they thought that the UN should be that kind of forum. Um, that was something that they tried to build on from kind of experiments in that direction uh, made by the League of Nations. In fact, the UN took many steps backward in that respect until really the 21st century, uh, or at least after the Cold War. So in some ways, uh, my subjects were really kind of ahead of their time. Um, but what they found is they were very linked to anything Israel did or said. So anytime these, these activists would go to the UN and say, hey, we want to make a, the right of petition a norm 
Let's build some institutions around that. The Arabs would come and say, hey, well, what about the Arabs in Palestine? And the Jews would look around and say, what does that have to do with anything? And it was this cudgel that they would that they would just get getting keep hammered by. And there was nothing they could do about it, in, you know, in part because uh, there's a sort of inequality for states and non-state actors at a place like the U.N. Um, but it had a really corrosive effect on Jewish human rights advocacy there. Um, you know, in its most dramatic effect, um, there are a number of uh, sort of more technical studies and, and things that they wanted to get involved with that they decided not to because they said anything we do is just going to ask Arabs to put out more propaganda on Israel. The other thing relating to the Soviet bloc, and, and that sort of, I think, begins a little bit later, um, maybe after uh, the Suez crisis of 1956, um, when there's sort of a break between Israel and the Soviet Union, and uh, uh, Israel sort of moves into the Western alliance sort of decisively. Um, I have a little chapter on the first time the UN discusses anti-Semitism. As a phenomenon, there is this much forgotten uh, few months in uh, early 1960 when uh, essentially there is a KGB operation that's supposed to make uh, Israel and West Germany not get along. And um, essentially what it leads to is an outbreak of uh, swastikas uh, throughout the world. Um, and this swastika outbreak essentially leads to a discussion about possibly creating um, an international treaty against anti-Semitism. Um, and what eventually happens is this whole process becomes a forerunner for Zionism is racism that enters into uh, international lexicon. Um, and it's put there essentially by the Soviets um, uh, because uh, Jewish organizations, Israel, America, and a few others sort of use this opportunity to say, hey, when we are talking about anti-Semitism, we're actually talking about Soviet anti-Semitism. Um, and the Soviets don't want that scrutinized. And it's a very long story. You'll have to check out the details in the book. But essentially in 1965, 10 years before the Zionism is racism resolution comes out, um, it's essentially the Soviet bloc that is behind this idea being entered into uh, the sort of UN discourse, and it's obviously very shocking. I want to pivot back to the way in which Israel is perceived by some of the non-state actors that you talk about. We, we just spoke about how Jewish organizations um, started to experience some friction with Israel as it developed in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and of course, your point of divergence there is much earlier than some people typically place it in 1967. On the flip side, when we're looking at the way Israel is viewed by non-sectarian or, or, or secular human rights organizations like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch, um, as you lay it out, those groups don't begin to target Israel for more severe or particular criticism until well after the Six-Day War. So when did Israel start to become seen as sort of a human rights pariah by these groups, as the perception seems to be today? Yeah, so there's a sort of different kind of revisionism I offer. Um, and, and I think part of that begins with 
the observation that um, essentially human rights and the human rights uh, projects uh, kind of splinter in the 1970s. Um, on one hand, you have the UN, uh, where you have uh, increasingly autocratic governments using human rights as a tool for all, for all sorts of things. Um, you know, in some ways that has continued up until the present day where you have, you know, terrible human rights violators on the Human Rights Council and such. Um, and it, in, in those quarters, Israel is absolutely an obsession. Um, Israel is a very useful rallying point for the global south, um, particularly uh, after South African apartheid ends, but even as um, South Africa sort of becomes the only uh, imperial game left in town, let's say in the 80s. Um, but, the, but starting in the 70s, that's sort of when, uh, you know, historians are, are beginning to identify a sort of takeoff period. That's when you have the mushrooming of um, human rights organizations that we think of today. Amnesty obviously date ba dates back much further than that, but they don't win the Nobel Prize until 1977. Um, and essentially, my argument is there are lots of these groups. There are lots of other issues that they're concerned with. And it's not until the first intifada that they really begin uh, to investigate Israel more severely. Um, and that's certainly when a human rights movement emerges in Israel, when a lot of the human rights NGOs that are familiar to uh, many of your listeners uh, begin to take shape. And really, it's probably not until after the second intifada in 2001 that Israel really becomes the human rights pariah. Right. And of course, between the first intifada and the second intifada, you also had the peace process, the Oslo process, and that probably took some of the heat off. Yeah. Because yeah. things seemed to be trending in the right direction for a couple of years. Um, yeah. So this is all pretty weighty stuff. After working on this book and writing this book, you must be, uh, you know, grappling with some of these questions yourself. So how has your work with IPF Atid helped you confront the issues that we're discussing today? You know, I, I still like to think that there is a, a home for, for liberal Zionism. Um, I, I really appreciate that, that IPF Atid keeps a very, um, a very wide tent. You know, I've, I've met people who I think are both to the left and to the right of me, um, which uh, makes me feel like I'm in good company, uh, that there is a very diverse set of voices that are heard and nourished and lifted up. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, it, it's hard for me to guess. I, I, I would venture a guess that, that maybe the, the San Francisco Jewish community may be, uh, you know, on the whole more, more to the left than, uh, than others. Um, but I still really appreciate uh, the, the efforts that we've made so far to grow the chapter here um, and interest people with all sorts of different backgrounds and, and points of departure. Um, and I've really just appreciated that, that diversity uh, of opinion that IPF really has been able to bring together since the sort of relaunch of the organization in the last uh, 10 years. Great. And, and of course, I, I second all of that, although I'm a little bit biased. But <laughs> So thank you, Nathan, for, for joining us on this episode of Israel Policy Pod. Thanks, Evan.
And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you're interested in Nathan's book, it's called Jewish Internationalism and Human Rights After the Holocaust. It's out now, and there will be a link in the description of this podcast to that book if you're interested in learning more about it. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Israel Policy Pod.